We like on Sundays to share what we've been doing uh, during the week. For those who aren't able to come to various retreats or know about all the things that happen at the monastery. And we've had a practice now for several weeks, a mindfulness-based practice, dropping into your heart, which consists of knowing when your mind is spinning, as it often does, you know, chewing on things it's worried about and discovering that, realizing that, that's part of mindfulness, remembering, recollecting, oh wait, is this what I want to be using right now? And then dropping into the heart and then seeing if that makes a difference and if so, what kind of difference does it make? We're doing some little videos of some of these mindfulness tasks and other short talks. Hogan ha had this idea after Tenzin Wangyal, a Vajrayana teacher, uh, visited us, and he's very diligent about doing video teachings every week, and he has a sangha around the world that tune in. And Shiho, one of our residents, has um, got the equipment together, including a green screen. We're really fancy now, a green screen, so she can put any, any background behind us. And we have a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube, and you type in Zen Community of Oregon, the channel will come up. It only has about 14, I think, videos right now. But if you subscribe, that's good. You know, that's, then we're doing the right thing. If more, more people subscribe, that's good. So dropping into the heart, dropping into the heart. In, uh, there's a different way of looking at the heart in the West and the East. In the, in the West, if you ask somebody where where are you in this body? Most people will say, I'm here. Uh, this is where I live, right here. And I have these little, you know, sort of eye holes that I look out of. And then the brain, the little computer up there says, uh, oh, I see something I like. I see a donut. And then it instructs the legs, walk over to the donut. Then the legs go. And then it, and, and it, then it instructs the hand to reach out and take the donut. And then put the donut in my mouth. And then the mind says, I like this donut, I don't like this donut. If I eat these don too many donuts, I'm going to get fat, and then suffering begins, right? But we think it's all based up here. And there's so much neurologic research on what meditation does and how it changes the brain. We were talking about that this morning at breakfast. But if you ask people in the East, in general, where do you live in this body, they will say here in the heart, or in the hara, in the gut, coming from the gut, but mostly coming from the heart. And actually, in the East, in Japanese or Chinese writing, or Vietnamese writing, they use kanji, kanji are pictographs, and the pictograph for mind and heart are the same. So they're not considered two things. In the West, we divide them into two functions and two organs, but in the East, they're not. So this is the kanji the modern kanji for heart and mind, heart-mind. So if you see that written in some of our names, my, my full name, my full Dharma name is Shin-so, and it's this Shin, pronounced Shin in Japanese, Shin-so. So heart and then transparent or clear, and then chosen. And there's a very interesting history for kanji. So uh, kanji is very old. Kanji is the Japanese name for this, this kind of pictograph writing, which came from China. 
And they thought it was about 4,500 years old, but uh, new archaeological evidence indicates that it's about 5,000 years old. And um, some of the, the earliest records of, of kanji writing, of pictographs writing in Japan, in China, uh, from 5,000 years ago, are from what are called oracle bones. So they used to do divination using bones. And there were two types. There were, um, well, there were multiple types, but the two common types were scapula bones from oxes, shoulder blades, and turtle shells. So those are called, uh, uh, let's see, it's called plastromancy. Plastrum is the name for the turtle shell, or scapulomancy, to try to uh, get messages from the gods by using these bones. And they would burn the bones, and then the, heat the bones, and then they would crack, and they would try to read the cracks <clears throat> and as a message from the gods. So they would look at the cracks and see if they corresponded to something in the natural world. Oh, that looks like a tree, or that looks like a woman. Uh, and so then they would they would try to interpret that message that was coming from the gods through the through the bones, and um, actually they this is was very popular in the Shang dynasty, which is the earliest Chinese dynasty dynasty, and they didn't uh, for a long time. There was a lot of controversy about whether whether the Shang dynasty actually existed, but then they found these huge caches of these divination bones. And over over hundred thousand have been found so far, uh, and they and the early writing forms, and they realized, oh, there was a whole dynasty. But a lot of what we know about the dynasty is fairly mythological because it's so old. <clears throat> and then they also used the that system to write messages to the gods, so they would get messages from the gods in these little cracks, and then they would write or burn messages into the bones to send back to the gods. So this is an example. The, this is this in the tortoise shell divination. So what does this look like? A heart. Yeah, it kind of looks like a tortoise <laughs> shell. But it's a heart. It's a heart cut in half. <clears throat> so if you cut a, a heart in half, you have the oracles and you have the ventricles. And there are actually two oracles and two ventricles. But this roughly looks like a heart. So this was the earliest pictograph of heart-mind. It looked like this, and, and it was found on those bones, on the oracle bones. <clears throat> so now there's another legend. This is a legend. This is more what I just showed you is based on archaeology. But there's a legend about how kanji developed. So there was a mythical emperor called the Yellow Emperor, very important in acupuncture. There's the, the myth, the Yellow Emperor's treatise uh, on medicine, which includes acupuncture points and various um, Chinese medicines. But there was also another person who seems to be mythical named Kanjie. Kanji. And he was supposedly the historian who uh, helped record the records of the dynasty of the Yellow Emperor. And at that time, to record information, they used a system of knots. And at first, I couldn't believe that how could they record information using knotted rope. But I looked it up, and it's actually well known. Uh, the Aztecs did it too. It was found in several civilizations. And they had a whole system of numbers based on knots. So 
uh, and the knots could have different twists in them. So if you had four twists in the knot, that was the number four. And then if you had a space, that was zero. So it's based on 10. And then if you had four little knots, uh, one knots in a row, that was 40. So you could have, so be four little knots in a row would be 40, and then a space would be a zero, and then a one, and that would be four, 401. So very, very interesting. And they have all kinds of records that um, were created that way. Mostly records of taxation, uh, but some of them seem to be names of gods and other things too. But the yellow emperor said, we need a more efficient method to keep track of our records. So he asked Kwanji to create a way, a new way to record information. So Kwanji meditated, sat down on the banks of the river, uh, of a river, and meditated how to do this. How could he create a system that would record information that was better than the knots? And he didn't get anywhere. He pondered for days and days and just couldn't come up with anything. And uh, he had, by legend, and he's, he's depicted this way, four eyes and eight pupils. So, you know, there's a debate sometimes about should you sit with your eyes open or closed? He could do both <laughs> at the same time. But still, with all, despite his four eyes and eight pupils, he couldn't come up with a new writing system. But then a phoenix flew over. You know, you know this is myth because there's a phoenix involved. So a phoenix flew over and dropped something in front of him. And he picked it up, and it was the imprint of a, of a hoof print, or a paw print, a hoof print probably is what they describe it as. And he, but he didn't know, maybe it was a piece of clay, or even baked clay, uh, but he didn't know what it was from. So he uh, asked a local hunter, what, what is this hoofprint from? And the hunter said, it's from a pichu. And a, a pichu is also a mythical animal. With a, it looks like a lion, but with the head of a dragon. It's very powerful. It's supposed to be more powerful even than a lion. And the hunter said, this is the, the print of a pichu. And uh, the Pichu is unlike any other animal on earth. And that really struck Kanji. Kanji, he, he thought, oh, so, he, so when you see this, you recognize through it, through this symbol, that animal has been here. So he thought, ah, oh, maybe that's, that's a clue as to how to develop my writing system. Can I capture the special characteristics of everything on earth in my writing system? So he, again, meditated. And he meditated this time with a different eye. So this eye was directed outward. And this eye was directed towards the things around him. Could he capture the essence of a cloud in a pictograph, a print? Could he capture the essence of trees, of stones, of woman, of man, of child, of sun, of moon? So everything he saw, he thought, how can I capture its essence? And then um, he painted it. So this is actually the essence of art, isn't it? That in art, we try to distill down the special characteristics of something and convey it through music, through painting. Even abstract painting, the idea is that there's something in there. When you see a painting in a museum, you, it's very abstract. You're still trying to grok. What is, what is that from? What does that convey? So that's what he was trying to do. 
So he created the first set of characters, so like this, like the tortoiseshell character, and uh, delivered those to the emperor. And the emperor was delighted and called all the heads of all the provinces in China together and had Kanjie teach them these characters so they could go back and then teach their subjects. So that's the legend of how the Kanjie uh, writing system developed in China. And from China, it spread to Vietnam, so they used Kanji, and to Korea and to Japan eventually. So Japan had, didn't have a writing system before the Chinese brought it in, or actually through Korea, the Koreans brought it in. And in China, because China is so huge, it became very diverse, and the characters began to diverge. So at some point, they they called a convocation and said, we need to standardize these characters so everybody's using the same characters for sun or for water or for fire. And that actually happened in Japan, too, with the Heart Sutra. So the Heart Sutra had, there were many ways of chanting the Heart Sutra in Japan, in Sino-Japanese. As we have many English translations in the US, if you go to different Zen centers, you'll find a different translation into English. So Hogan and I often get confused because we practice with Harada Roshi. He has one translation in English. Zen Center has another translation, the standard Zoto translation, which was an attempt to bring it all to one English translation. Didn't work because people liked their own translation in America. They weren't willing to give up their translation. But in Japan, it worked. Uh, so they said, let's have one way of chanting the Heart Sutra so that wherever you go, whatever Buddhist center you go to, you can chant the Heart Sutra and feel at home. And they did that. So they did the same thing with the kanji in, in China. It helps if you have an emperor who says, this is the way it's going to be done, right? Doesn't work with democracy very well. Uh, so the, these, these, were, these are pictographs. So they depict, uh, they depict the essence of something. And that reminds me of koans. So when we're doing koans and we're asked to do a koan, we're asked to use our body as the artistic medium to depict the essence of something. So it could be a cypress tree in the garden. It could be a sailboat. But the artistic medium is our body. And we have to bring that essence alive in, in the room with the teacher. So this, this Shin character evolved. So this is the most primitive one that has been seen, the one that looks like a heart sliced in half. And then, and this is a heart. You know, if you actually cut a heart in half, it looks more like that. And we looked at a little heart and a possum roadkill yesterday. We did a dissection. I didn't cut it in half, though. I should. And then uh, this is a more, um, this is called the bamboo silk character. So the character evolved. And because painting with a brush, it's hard to make square corners. Usually it's um, more graceful and has smooth curves. So this was a later evolution of that same character. And it's called the bamboo silk character because they began writing on strips of bamboo they, about as long as a chopstick and two times as wide as a chopstick. And then they would bind them together to make silks. They would write up and down on a longitudinal piece of bamboo. So Chinese writing, you may have noticed, goes up and down. And it's read that way, the original Chinese writing. And then as it's taken a print form, it's been squared off. So it went from 
there are steps in between, but it went from the heart to the, the symbol of the heart here to a more cursive symbol and then to this final symbol here. So shin, this shin, means heart-mind, but it has all kinds of connotations. So in the heart realm, it has the connotation of spirit, or wholehearted, or sincere, or feelings, emotions. It has all of those meanings, in the, what we would call in the West the heart side. And then in the mind side, it also means thoughts or ideas. So those aren't all separate in the East. Those are all together. So our, we might feel, um, have feelings about something, and then out of that we generate ideas or thoughts. And it also means essence. So this, this means essence, and it also means answer as to a riddle. Isn't that interesting? The answer to a riddle is found here in Western terms, found here in the heart. In the mind, yes, but also in the heart. And we tend in, in, in the West to neglect the heart in Zen because we're very concerned about developing the mind because most people have realized that it's the mind that creates their suffering. That the mind, when it gets going on, oh, a donut, and then if I eat too many, I'm going to get fat, and oh, I'm such a slob, and blah, I'm going to die of diabetes, and off we go, and then we're in our coffin, right? And then what shall I wear in my coffin, and who will come to my funeral? And, and we realize, oh, it's my mind that is the source of my suffering. So we work very, very hard working to clarify and settle the mind so we can find some sense of calm and spaciousness. And out of that, when we drop in a riddle, when we drop in an essential question from our life, then sometimes wisdom and clarity emerge in our mind. It's very lovely. So our essential riddles in, in Zen are, who am I? And what am I doing here? Why am I alive? What is my life for? What is this all about? How should I be in the world? Or the question that I asked a few weeks ago, well, what would make my life worthwhile? What would make my life meaningful? So I proposed the answer, well, if you saved one person's life, would that make your life meaningful? And then some people in the medical field said, yeah, yeah, no, I know surgeons and they save people's lives all the time, but they don't think of that as anything special. But maybe for us who are not out saving lives all the time, in that sense, the EMT medical sense, you know, if we save one person's life, or if we save one person from deep suffering, would that be worthwhile? And what if that person were ourselves? Would that make our life worthwhile? If, our, if we could end our suffering and then the benefit of that could spread out. So how do we want to be in the world? We know when we're feeling lonely, when we're feeling distressed, when we're feeling alienated, this is not the way I want to be in the world. And we know when we're feeling at ease, when we're feeling a sense of comfort in being who we are in the world, when we have a sense of connection and belonging, we know, oh, this is how I would like to be in the world. But we don't know how to go from one to the other. So in our practice, we have ways, which we call practices. Some people call them tools. One of my teaching partners doesn't like the word tools because it implies something we can manipulate. 
but we have practices that help us learn how to shift from suffering to ease, how to shift from loneliness and alienation to a feeling of connection and belonging. So then, our, then we have choice. And one of my aphorisms is awareness gives us choice and choice gives us freedom. And the practice helps us with those choices. So let's try some heart-based practices and see. Does it, does it shift us in any way? So I would like you first to look at the floor. So wherever you are, just look at the floor. And I'd like you to look at the floor with your mind. So what does your mind notice about the floor? How does it see the floor? And you can look around a bit. You don't have to just stare at the floor. What does your mind notice about the floor? Now I'd like you to drop into your heart. So literally disconnect your center of, of awareness. Drop it into your heart. And I'd like you to look at the floor with your heart and see what the heart notices. What did you find? Was was there a difference, Diamond? A series of lines. Mm-hmm. So this was from the mind. A series of lines and. Mm-hmm. So it went from a kind of geometry to something that actually felt warm, had color, connotated support, like support when we walk on it, it supports us. Uh Thank you. So there's no right answer here. Everybody has a different experience of everything. (laughs) Anybody else? What was your experience? So something when the mind looked at it was imperfections, little dents and scrapes in the floor. And then when you shifted to the heart, it became actually beauty, beautiful. Interesting. Anybody else? What did you notice? So again, the geometry of the lines and the objective colors. And then when you shifted to the heart, you could see through the floor to the tree in a way. And gratitude for the tree and the earth. This is bamboo, by the way. So in case you needed to know what tree. <laughs> right there, right? Anybody else? Any, anything you notice? Sunny? 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a very interesting question. Uh, I'm going to ask it later, though. Uh, I'm going to ask it later because I want to do a few more exercises. But you noticed that the room seemed to get quieter when, when we all shifted to the heart. Mm -hmm. okay. And did you notice anything different when you were looking at the floor with your mind and your heart? Hmm. So what were you thinking about the floor? <laughs> okay. What's going on with you, floor? And then when you shifted your heart, received the floor. So it was receptive. Uh huh. Interesting. So it, it, kind of a direction. The mind goes this way, and the heart is receptive. Mm -hmm. So this, it sounds like the space between you and the floor then collapsed. That it wasn't a, any distance away. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Before it was an object out there that you were looking at, and then. Mm -hmm. So the notion of a solid thing out there disappeared. So I want to do some more. Uh, so everybody will have a chance to say what their experience is. So now I would like you to put, up, put your hand in front of your face. And I want you to look at the hand with your mind. What does your mind notice about this thing we call a hand? So you can turn it over, look at the front, look at the back. What does your mind notice? Okay, now I'd like you to shift, so disconnect from the mind and bring your awareness to your heart and look at this hand with your heart. Again, you can turn it or move it. What does the heart notice or see that looks at the hand? And is that different when you shifted? Okay. Anybody? Let's take some new people who haven't spoken up before. Any difference? Joseph, you did you raise your hand? Mm-hmm. 
Now, Joseph's a, a musician, for those of you who don't know Joseph. So his hands have been very important. So you shifted from, oh, yeah, I used to have a book on, on palm reading and which is the life line and which is the heart line and trying to remember. And then you switched to gratitude. And you went to the heart. This gratitude emerged for this amazing thing that has given you so much in your life. Anybody else? Ah, River. So when you look, more vivid experience, when you were looking at it with the mind, it was an object, and you were describing this object sort of as a blob, and then it has these things that wiggle, sort of thing, yeah. And it looks different on the front than the back. But then when you shifted to heart, then it sounds like you actually moved inside the hand because you, your awareness, you could feel the energy in the hand. Mm -hmm. So from outside to inside. Anybody else? Kiko? So the words disappeared, actually. There was a feeling of beauty, but the, the words that carried an investigation forward. Yeah, yeah, because mm -hmm. it's like the investigation seems really easy, and then mm -hmm. you open your heart, and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> yeah, I thought, man, if the, the palm of my hand looks so young and the back looks so old I should like get some of that over here <laughs> maybe I should have gone around doing this all the time <laughs> using that part of my hand more and be thicker and smoother <laughs> that was when I was doing it with the mind yes Mm -hmm. A feeling sense. Mm -hmm. 
be a drop from mind, oh, I'm aging. People have mentioned little elements of criticism came in, self-criticism, judgment, and then that disappears when you dropped into the heart, and it was all the wonderful things that your hands have enabled you to do. And they all had to do with connecting. Did you notice that? They all had to do with connecting. So, okay, here's another one. This one involves touch, so please put your hands in your lap. You can clasp them like this. So the hands are clasping each other gently. And I would like you to investigate the sensations in the hands with your mind first. What are the sensations in the hands? So it could be warmth, coolness, could be tingling, could be areas of light touch or even no touch and areas of stronger touch. Investigating with the mind, all of the sensations that we call two hands together. Notice if they change. Okay, now drop from mind into heart, however you do that. Disconnect from mind and drop into heart. And be aware of the touch sensations in the hands with your heart. Any difference? Anybody hasn't spoken yet? Did you notice any difference? Recording? Hmm. Just the feelings. Mm-hmm. So again, from outside to inside. So outside we're labeling, right? Which is a meditation technique. It's a very helpful meditation technique for developing concentration. To label, oh, that's warm, that's cool, there's light pressure. But then when, when you drop into the heart, somehow the words go away and it's just the experience of the sensation. So again, from outside to inside, interesting. Yes. So from the outside, um, from the mind, you were experiencing the little details of two hands touching each other. And then somehow it changed. I'm not sure when you switched to heart. What Can you describe that more? Mm. Mm. So your awareness widened then uh, to the lab and the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody else described that better than I would say. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. I'm noticing. Yes. <laughs> Clammy and sticky, that doesn't sound too appetizing. Uh -huh. Mm. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So she went from cold, clammy, and sticky to warm and holding life. It's a big difference in how you just experience one thing, your hands clasped in your lap. Yeah. Okay, so let's try another one. I, I, I'm, I'm doing these because I want to encourage you to apply this to everything. Keep on being curious about how to apply this shift from dropping from mind to heart and, and investigate it further on your own. So this is going to be sound, and there are various ways we could do sound. So we'll do um, one, uh, which is close your eyes, please, and with your mind, be aware of your breath. However... That works for you. Have your mind be aware of your breath. And you can add anything you need to, numbers, whatever, whatever you need to, to add, so that the mind can concentrate on the breath. Be sure to notice out-breath, turning of the breath, in-breath. Whatever the mind is able to notice about the breath. Okay, now I'd like you to shift and drop your awareness into your heart and be aware of your breath with your heart and see if it's different or not. What is the heart's awareness? What does the heart notice about the breath? Okay, any differences or were they the same? Anybody hasn't shared yet? Yes? Mm. 
Mm -hmm. So it expanded your awareness from speci specifics, either the breath or the pulse, to the fact that the whole body is breathing. Not just the breath isn't just here. Mm -hmm. So expanded awareness when you dropped into the heart. Anybody else? Interesting. So what you described first was parts, wasn't it? The clothing, the breath in your throat, and so on. Those parts. So the mind was hopping around. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. There it is. But then when you dropped into the heart, it was some, something that was whole. It was just a sense of happiness. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Isn't this interesting? I think this is such an interesting exercise, and to keep applying it to different things. One more, anybody else about the breath? Notice anything? Linda? Shalom? So Linda was there on Thursday, so this is the second time she's done this. But other people mentioned this, that when they were following their breath from their mind, sometimes the mind gets anxious about, am I doing this right? And then you can't breathe anymore, and people will complain when they first started start following their breath. Oh, I just, I, I can't catch my breath, or my breath feels so tight, or I, I don't know what I'm, how I'm supposed to be breathing. And it's hard to say to people, well, all night long, your body breathes for you just fine, just get out of the way and watch it. But when you dropped into the heart, that became easy. And it's more like the waves on the ocean. It comes in and it goes out and you're just part of it, part of that movement without anything trying to evaluate it or change it. Isn't that interesting? Chris? Brett? And it, did it become easier to breathe then? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? When the mind gets in there, it creates havoc with something which, that we do all the time without noticing it. Because it begins evaluating that, oh, this isn't how I would like, I should take a bigger in-breath, whatever it says. So you can see why in Zen we emphasize the mind, because it's the source of suffering often, through its criticism, judgment, comparison, and so on. 
NVIDIA's comparison, where we're always found wanting. But there's more to it, which is bringing the heart. So we had a loving-kindness retreat that Shanae and Kise left, led, and a few weeks ago, and um, I think we need to we need to continue that practice, investigating the pra the heart practice. Both are important. We're not discarding the mind at all. The mind is very valuable, but there's a certain coldness and tendency towards criticism of self and other that can create havoc. I remember when I was first meditating, and I've heard it from students since. People would say, um, well, "Okay, I'm sitting there," and then I f I realize my right shoulder feels like it's too high. So then I move my left shoulder up to match it. And I'll, now they're both too high. I'm going to put them both down. No, that's not right. Now they're too far forward. And so <laughs> this thing you've done naturally all your life suddenly becomes very complicated and a source of difficulty. That's when the mind gets too much in charge. Okay, we're going to do one more one that has to do with sound. So I'd like you to close your eyes, and I'm going to say some words and I want you to hear them first with your mind. Okay, so close your eyes. Last week, Donald Trump, our new president, gave a rambling press conference and often went off subject. So just receive that with the mind. Now, I'd like you to drop into your heart and listen from your heart. Last week, Donald Trump, our new president, gave a rambling press conference and often veered off subject. Ready? Same or different? Janae, are you scratching your nose or do you have your hand up? Okay. And before that, when you were listening with the mind? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. That was the feeling of it, uh -huh. but not exactly that word. So you see how judgment comes in with the mind, creeps in? Because the mind does a good job of comparing things and helping us evaluate things. That's a wonderful function. But then if we don't bring the heart in, then we have no compassion. Anybody else? What, any, anything that changed when you switched from the mind hearing that statement to the heart, Jogan? So first it was alarm and distress, and then it was concern, so a little shift there. Mm. 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 
Mm -hmm. Interesting, because sometimes the mind, when it gets upset, can get frantic, and then you don't take action, or you take action that isn't well considered. But maybe concern would be different. There would be a different movement towards a other thing. Yopa, did you have your hand up? Yes. So you're listening to this, the sounds rather than the words, analyzing the words. Oh, interesting. Thank you. his own. Who wants to be president in this room? Would anybody like to be president? What a job. <laughs> Ian, you'd vote for Ian. Ian, you want, you're volunteering to be president. Yeah. So just so you know, President Obama said that on his first day in office, when he received all of the briefings from everybody on the cabinet and his advisors, he said, if these windows didn't have bars on them, I would jump out. <laughs> and he was a politician. He was a politician who knew something about what he was getting into. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> well, the, you keep testing this in different, with different things, and that might be a tough one at first. At first. Yeah. Uh huh, they're not two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when we mix them up, then we can get into trouble. So it helps us for a while to separate out, like it helps us to concentrate on the descending breath, the turning of the breath, the in-breath, the turning of the breath, the silence around the breath, and so on. It helps us to take these things apart that we've glommed together and have reactions to, and we don't even know why we're reacting. But when we take it apart in this way, you can see, wow, I can see there's a difference between when my mind looks at something and my heart looks at something, and I can know when my mind is getting in trouble or my heart's getting in trouble, and I can shift. So if we get sloppy sentimental about something, then we can say, whoa, heart's taken over. What we call heart has taken over. I'm going to shift to my mind and, my, and let my mind analyze this situation. What does my mind say about this? So it's the balance between the two. That's why we have Manjusri Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of great wisdom and clarity. But if, if only that's emphasized, it can turn into indifference, cold indifference, and actually cruelty. 
And then we have the Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. But if it's not balanced by wisdom, then it can turn into sloppy sen sentimentality and we can drown in it. So they're both important. They both balance each other. And we're just trying to strike a balance here by looking at them separately. So the other thing we've been studying this, uh, these last two months, January and February, are prejudice, discrimination, exclusion, and inclusion. Is this what we just did? Is that related? Maybe. Depending on how we look at things. So, so none of these things are, are separate. So this might be the best practice to do. Currently, I'm doing it whenever I detect uncomfortable prejudice or criticism of myself or someone else. It's usually of someone else. I'm, I'm not a terribly self-critical person, but that energy does turn out. And, I, and it, it's stupid ways. I'll be in the airport and I'll go, somebody walk by and I go, she shouldn't wear shoes like that. Who cares what shoes this perfect stranger that I see for two seconds is wearing? But my mind will say that. So then immediately I go, whoops, 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 and change to heart. Oh, and as soon as I change to heart, it's like, oh, this person is, they're on a journey someplace. And I wonder how they're feeling. Maybe they're scared of flying in an airplane, or maybe they're going to their father's funeral. I don't know. You know, it changes the whole experience. So I think this is a, a, a huge practice for prejudice, judgment, right at, the, right at the heart of it. So I encourage you to practice this, uh, too, because I find when I shift to heart practice, it does exactly what Kanji wanted to do when he wrote the Kanji, which is to capture the special characteristics and appreciate the special characteristics of each thing on earth. I'm going to read a little bit because we've been reading, we, we have a class downtown called Awakening to Whiteness. And one of our readings is from Martin Luther King. It's actually quite moving. So he, this is a talk he gave on loving your enemies. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts. Let us move now from the practical how to love our enemies, which he discusses before, to the why. Why should we love our enemies? The first reason is fairly obvious. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And the Buddha said exactly the same thing in the Dhammapada. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. The CDC, by the way, has just just studied violence, and, and it, it is epidemic, and it is it does spread. One act of violence creates more acts of violence. So they're now looking at it as an epidemic disease. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken, or we shall be plunged in the, into the dark abyss of annihilation. Another reason why we must love our enemies is that hate scars the soil and distorts the soul and distorts the personality. Mindful that hate is an evil and dangerous force, we too often think of what it does to the person hated. 
This is understandable, for hate brings irreparable damage to its victims. We have seen its ugly consequences in the ignominious deaths brought to six million Jews by a hate-obsessed madman named Hitler, and the unspeakable violence inflicted upon Negroes, that was the term at the time he was speaking, by bloodthirsty mobs in the dark horrors of war and in the terrible indignities and injustices perpetrated against millions of God's children by unconscionable oppressors. And then he says, but there is another side that we must never overlook. So just as hate injures the person and creates more hate in the person that you're hating, now he turns to ourselves. There is another side that we must never overlook. Hate is just as injurious to the person who hates. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful and to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. So as we often say about loving kindness practice, we do it for ourselves as well as for others. Because hate, and you can back up from hate to judgment and criticism, whether it's of ourselves or others, is corrosive. So we do this practice, this very important practice, for ourselves, for others around us, and for the whole world. Thank you.